episode 45 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. With me, Brian Davis. I'm Doc Fermento. This is a podcast where we talk to geeks, gurus, and experimenters. And quite often, seemingly now, doctors as well. <laughs> Today we're talking with Nick Bennett. He's an assistant professor in pediatric infectious disease, and he's a vocal fan of patient-centered care. I like that. It's a brief bio of his from Twitter. And um, as he tells us, he's a he's a double doctor, a doctor doctor. He's got a MD and a PhD, so another big brain on the show to go along with the adult. That is me. So I had a, a fantastic time talking to Nick um, for this episode. It was a really great conversation. I know nothing about um, vaccinations and these infectious diseases. So for me, it was just a you know a course of learning. Um, I tried to ask a few questions, maybe they're pertinent questions to me, but... Um, my mind was just racing the whole time as he's talking about the next thing. I don't listen very well. I just want to ask the next question. <laughs> um, since I don't use notes or anything, you know. Um, so it, it was a lot of fun. I, I really hope you learned something about um, pediatric infectious disease, vaccinations, immunizations, whatever the... whatever. So Nick is a doctor slash professor PhD in Hartford, Connecticut. He takes care of the little ones. We need people like him. I really hope you love this show. Um, if you want to find out more, which I hope you will, please go to askbrian.com slash the podcast slash 45. Or just go to askbrian.com. And click some links and you'll find it. If you love the show, if you've been a regular listener or you're brand new and you just love throwing money around, please consider supporting the show. There's a few ways. One is through the Amazon link on my resources page. You all know how this works. You click the Amazon link and you go buy diapers and batteries and then I get a few cents on the purchase you make. There's also... A link for Audible. Audible is a creator seller of audiobooks. You can learn anything about the world there. The link for that is audibletrial.com forward slash docfermento. I believe I have a link or two on my website if you can't follow those instructions. And then also if you uh, are interested in child behavior, say if you're a parent and you want a, a way to, to learn how to, to manage and you know grow a healthy and um, well-balanced child, a, a child with problem-solving skills, I would highly recommend going to needhelpparenting.com and learning more about the program that is available there. 
So those are my ads. I think that's it. Enjoy the show. Hello. Hello, Brian. Hi. Hey, it's Nick Bennett. How are you? Hi. Very good, Nick. Or am I to call you Bennett? Uh, <laughs> I, I answer to either. I'm okay with Bennett. It's okay. All right. Hey, am, am I on video or just you? You are not on video right now. Okay. I think I am. At least I can see my rather scruffy-looking shirt. Yeah. Um, I, I would add it, but I think um, my computer will bog down to the, the nth degree. Yeah, that's all right. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um. <clears throat> Oh, by the way, uh, my my recorder starts automatically, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm recording now. That's all right. I try not to say anything uh, too obscene. So, what's the accent? Where are you from? Oh, I'm from England originally. Okay, uh, Southwest England, but uh, moved around a bit. I thought I was very well traveled until I came to the states. So I now know it's a it's a bigger world than I expected. <laughs> oh yeah, how's that? Yeah. Uh, well, England can fit inside New York State. And then there's 49 other states to think about. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a big, it's a big country. Yeah, I, I wouldn't let it get to you too much. Um, there's, there's not much to see. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, of course. Hey, so, you know, I found you because of a vaccination comment on Twitter, yeah. mm-hmm. and you were very kind. Um, I was. I think maybe I was being a little negative on vaccines or something in the Twitter conversation. And you were just very nice and kind and just pointed me to some links and some things to consider and read. And I mm-hmm. really appreciated that. Oh, that's all right. Um, yeah. I, I, I think you can, um, it's easy from either side to get very um, passionate, vocal about what you believe in. Um, the trouble is, if you if you do that too much online, either with emails or or web or Twitter, you can just come across as being um, being rude. So I I have to remind myself to make an effort, and sometimes you have to to go the other way purposefully and just say, like you said, just be nice about it. And uh, you often make more more ground ground that way. And even if even if you don't convince the person you're talking to, you sometimes can convince the listeners the middle ground. So. Um, so I appreciate you reaching out to me because uh, that's kind of what I what I am there for with Twitter is to engage people and and educate and answer questions. Um, and so yeah, this is a good opportunity to chat. That's excellent. So let's talk about your background a little bit. Let's let people know what um, where you were and what you do. So um, I'm. Currently, an infectious disease specialist in pediatrics in Connecticut. Um, my background to that is I, um, I did medical school in England, and then I actually met my uh, wife in England while I was doing my um, research. I, I have a, a PhD in virology as well. And um, she is an American, so that's why I ended up coming to the States. And I did all of my training after medical school in the states so my pediatric training and my infectious disease training is in the states i've had um an interest in virology and you can't help but get involved with vaccines if you're in pediatrics and especially in in peds id Um, there are lots of questions people have about them lots of concerns 
both from the um, parents, but also from other doctors. I mean, I, I get a steady stream of calls from doctors with questions about vaccines, either um, problems with them, concerns about um, using them in, in younger kids or older kids or outside of the recommended schedule um, or side effects. Um, so, and I've also done some vaccine studies when I was um, a resident and a fellow um, I was on, I wasn't running the studies, but I was one of the study team members involved with several vaccine clinical trials. So I've got to see the research side of vaccines too. Um, usually not, um, although sometimes with cutting edge vaccines, but usually with ex what we, I would think of as expanded use vaccines. So a good example might be um, the vaccine that we, we use now for tetanus is a modified tetanus booster. It has a whooping cough um, pertussis component added into it. And I was involved with the clinical trial for that vaccine here, but it had been used for 10 years elsewhere in the world. And so you could, although it was a, technically a clinical trial, you could go to the families and say, this is a vaccine that's got a 10 year safety record. Um, so it wasn't really experimental stuff, but even, even though it was technically a research study. So that's my, um, that's my background in terms are, of, are you an MD? Yes, I'm, I'm an MD and a PhD. Thought, well, technically, this is this interesting thing. My degree is not an MD because uh, I trained from England. So it's an MBB chair, which is uh, a funny degree, MBBCHIR. But it's the same as an MD it's from the U.S. perspective. But I've also got the PhD, too. So okay. I'm kind of a doctor, doctor. Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But, so uh, what, is it, what did you mean by PEDS ID? What, do you, what does that mean? So um, pediatrics is um, it's not just a specialist a specialty in its own right. It's it's divided into subspecialties. So you can have um, you can have peds GI, so a gastroenterologist who deals with kids, or peds cardiology, or peds pulmonary. So you have specialists within the pediatric area. And so I'm peds ID. Um, so I deal with infectious disease, but really with a focus on kids. So. Um, I have less emphasis and less experience and less training with adult infections, but I have a, a much more experience with pediatric infections. And there are some things that are just much more common in kids, some things that are unique to kids. Um, and kids, are, the motto is kids are not just small adults. And so they do present differently. They, they may get the same infection, but they'll look a little different than they might do with adults. And so... Mm. Um, we, we have a different spin on things and a different way of thinking about it. And uh, I, 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 I have often wondered why kids see pediatricians. Yeah, I used to think that too, because in England, uh, pediatricians are more of a hospital specialist. Um, and a, an awful lot of kids are taken care of by the family medicine docs, but that's the way they're trained in the UK to, to take care of um, the whole family. Um, in the, U in the U U.S., um, family medicine, although they do get some peds training, is, is definitely more biased towards adults. Um, and I, I do see a big difference in the care that is given to kids who go to dedicated pediatricians and particularly kids who go to dedicated children's hospitals. Um, I, I've wor only worked in two children's hospitals in the States um, for my training and for my current position. Um, but I used to see a lot of kids who were, who were previously seen at other places. And it was a very obvious that um, the doctors and nurses there either um, weren't um, comfortable dealing with the kids or just weren't sure how to manage them. And you definitely got a flavor, a sense that they were um, managing them as, as adults um, mm -hmm. in certain mm -hmm. situations. And 
Um, the skill set, I mean, the skills of, of pediatric nurses in particular um, are very impressive. The way they can manage the kids, they can get IVs in, uh, in veins that you just wouldn't believe. Um, so it's a very um, definite advantage that I see in, in, um, in pediatricians taking care of kids and especially children's hospitals taking care of kids. Uh, that's so my see, yeah and i can see how this kind of ties into your uh, i was reading your blog it's mm -hmm. it's quite good by the way thank you um <laughs> and the, you wrote a piece about um why you practice patient-centered care yeah i thought that was quite nice and can you explain that a little bit yeah um this goes way back to my medical school days um i was actually a um, pretty poor communicator um as a as a medical student and most of my um uh, research, if you want to call it that, background during high school and before college was, was nothing to do with medicine. I had very little medical work experience. And my medical school, which was um, Cambridge, early on had a heavy emphasis on science. And there are students like me who were going into our clinical year and we'd never seen a patient. You know, we hadn't laid on hands. Uh, we hadn't really talked to people. And um, the medical school was recognizing that was a problem. And so they instituted a new program called Preparing for Patients. And the goal was that students would take a series of training courses and get practice using standardized patients um, who are basically trained actors to talk to patients. And so um, we also got an opportunity to voice our fears and concerns about talking to patients because, believe it or not, medical students are absolutely paranoid about talking to people and, and touching them and, and, you know, invading their personal space. Yeah, I can see a person who's um, very studious, a very serious person, right. an excellent yeah. student, great test taker, um, possibly not having the best uh, social skills in the world. Exactly, so, sure. exactly right. And the UK in particular had realized they'd raised a generation of docs who were excellent, you know, clinicians and diagnosticians, but not necessarily with the best bedside manner. And um, so there was a, a active push, a national push to retrain the next generation of medics. And, and this was um, Cambridge's approach to that. So I signed up for the course. I took it for a couple of years um, in, in basically in our free time. We had uh, uh, in the vacations, we had a couple of week sessions here and there um, where you would basically work um, eight till four and doing classes, practice sessions, videotaping. You had to act out a scene. With the standardized patient and if it didn't go well you got to do it again you could correct your mistakes and do it again which you can't do with a real patient you know if you upset someone <laughs> you upset them right you they can't go back and, and do it again and that was utterly invaluable and um as i went through my my later years and my residency i realized that i i was really good at talking to patients and the difficult patients would start to seek me out and the other doctors would start to seek me out to say, oh, this is a good one for Bennett, you know. And, and so it became a little hard in some cases. Um, and I remember one um, girl who I worked with, um, she was a, a patient at one of the hospitals um, when I was a resident. And she was extremely ill. She had an awful, awful disease and was very, very withdrawn. And we'd actually been told, you know, don't talk to her. She doesn't want to hear anything about her care. You know, he doesn't want to hear answer any questions. Just talk to her mum, and she'll only talk to the attending, um, who she trusted, uh, who she'd known her for years. And I, I just pulled every trick I had from the the patient-centered um, training that I'd had in terms of um, asking open-ended questions and showing concern and making sure I was sitting down and spending the time, even if I didn't have the time. You you give the impression that you have the time. 
And um, over the course of about two weeks, she, you know, she turned around. She literally, she started to turn around in bed and look at me and then she would sit up and then she would ask questions. And, and when I finished the rotation, she just gave me this huge hug and said, you know, I wish I met you years ago, which um, knowing her history just um, kind of hit me. I said, wow, you know, this, I really made an impression on her. And I started teaching the skills that I had been taught as a medical student back in England. I actually uh, put together a, um, a short curriculum and started trying to teach it to my uh, medical students um, when I was a resident there. And that course um, is still going. Actually, I've left the I've left the program, but someone else is now teaching it. Um, and it's all about just it's not patient led care. It's not the patients telling you what what they want you to do. Mm-hmm. But it's you taking into account what they're worried about. So discovering their concerns, um, validating them, you know, trying to see things from their point of view, and then just picking things off one by one. You end up saving time doing this. It's right, right. a little counterintuitive, but if at the start of a visit you can say, you know, what what really worries you? You know, what are you concerned about right now? You can often save yourself half hour of a conversation where you're skirting around an issue when really the patient's there for one thing. And, and they, if you just give them the opportunity to say it, um, in a non-judgmental way that they will open up quite often. Yeah, you had mentioned, uh, you know, with the available, you know, the, the vast amount of information that's freely available on the Internet now, you have, yeah. you know, uh, a better educated uh, patient Definitely. population. Oh, so, yeah. But the problem is they could be completely skewed in just reading one thing. They're not right. as balanced. They're not as trained. So that's why you can't have patient-led care, you know. But the, the, but the, but no. the advertising in this country is almost forcing or or, or completely pushing patient-led <laughs> care because it's like ask your doctor ask your about. Doctor. I know that um, should be. And, uh, let me just throw this out there. I think that should be illegal. Well, it used to be, and in fact, in just about every other country in the world, it is illegal. Um, and it, it, it's funny when you come to the states from from somewhere like England where you just can't do that. Um, it really does uh, jump out at you. It leaps out at you that this is um, it's con- it's patient directed advertising, and in other countries it's physician directed advertising. And I always joke at the end of these ad- adverts, you know, I would say, you know, well, if the, if your doctor thought it was right for you, they'd have you on it already. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't have to ask them. They, they- There's not a chance in the world they haven't heard of the medication advertised on TV. I know. <laughs> um, so it's it's uh, but it works. I mean, that's the thing. They spend millions and millions of dollars on this advertising because it truly does work. Um, and that's why in, in, in most other places around the world it's illegal. So, uh, yeah, and then when it comes to advertising to the doctor, you know, the, um, the, the beautiful woman mm-hmm. selling the drugs the drug, in the office, the drug, yeah. maybe they should just use little kids to sell to sell to the doctor yeah um no it's uh like girl scouts like girl scout pharma reps well if if they if they brought around the little mint round ones the little cookies then i'd buy whatever drug they see if they were smart they'd just figure out what every doctor likes and yeah yeah, bring him his special cookies and yeah no great sales pitch it's funny because you you do learn things from drug reps there's no doubt there's an educational component there but there is an awful lot of um, potential for bias. And even the medics, they've surveyed docs and, and, and they've looked at their prescribing habits. And even the docs who say, like I do, I like to think I'm aware of the potential for bias and I'm not affected by it. Even doctors like me, we, they, we still skew our prescribing habits. They've studied that, even if we're not aware of it. 
Uh, and it's well, sure if something is brought to your attention, it's on the tip of your mind, you yeah. know, and something comes up or presents itself. Obviously, that's going to be the first place your mind you're goes. Going to think of it, yeah. yeah. It's it's almost a subliminal thing. There's there's some direct stuff, obviously, um, but a lot of this is uh, subliminal. And my old um, division uh, chief at my other where I trained, he just had a flat flat rule: no drug reps. There's no one allowed in in, in our division with this. You're not going to have any sponsored. Uh, lunches, it just, it's not going to happen. And he was he just drew the line in the sand. Um, and that for, for someone um, like me, that may be too draconian. I don't mind the idea of someone coming in and giving the residents a free lunch because residents love free food. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, yeah, I, that was just his, his approach. And I can completely understand it. Yeah. On an individual basis, I, I would applaud that, you know, but I don't yeah. think it should be the standard, right? No sales reps at all. That's yeah, ridiculous. That's, but... that's what that's what his decision was. And he was a boss. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Everyone the way, has their way. Um, some of my colleagues got around that is there was, you could do um, drug dinners, educational dinners off site. So we'd, we'd sometimes get invitations saying, you know, there's going to be an, a dinner about the latest antibiotic um, approval. If you want to come along and get a free dinner, then, you know, sign up here. And, you know, three or four of us might go along if we we're interested. Um, and the, the speakers were, were usually quite good. The speakers were not done, were not from the drug company. They were usually um, academic doctors who had expertise in that area. And they were usually very upfront. And they said, you know, I have to show you every slide in this presentation. I don't have to talk about every slide. And they would skip over some, you know. So this mm-hmm. isn't important. You're not going to. So they had some control, but they were very upfront that this was a, a you know, it was a drug company-led event. Um, so they weren't really trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Mm-hmm. They might still be trying to convince you of something. But yeah, I mean, you are talking. You are. It's a, it is the company of adults. I mean, right. <laughs> they're not selling to children. Yeah, exactly. Back to the kids again. Yeah, talking about communication with children is is just brilliant. You know, I I like your approach and the story you told. Um, One person I would like to recommend just for you to check out. Mm -hmm. His name's Doctor Harvey Carp. You've ever heard of him? No. Is that with a K or a C? With a K. Okay. Yeah, and K A R P. Mm -hmm. He has a little program um, called the Happiest Baby. Mm-hmm. I'm not a sales rep for him or anything, <laughs> but um, he has a couple of videos about um, how to communicate with a baby and a toddler, two different programs. Uh, uh, and idea? it has, it revolutionized my relationship with my children. And I teach other parents it, especially f- close friends. I'm not the most yeah. outgoing person, so mm-hmm. I have to know someone quite well to do it. Mm-hmm. But I can do his techniques for people and show them how to calm a toddler. Yeah, and I yeah. would r- highly encourage you to check it out. I, I can guarantee you that it will help you. Yeah. I, I might pull through Harvey, Harvey Carp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll hunt him down. I think if you um, probably just Googled the happiest baby, it would come up <laughs> because it's... If I do a Google images search, I'll, I'll be like laughing the rest right, of That's it. true too. <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, there's a, it's funny though, I, the, the manual, if you like, the training manual for the course that I did in England um, was something like 300 pages. And if you looked up pediatric communication skills, they had three pages dedicated. Wow. Yeah. It, it was just nothing. Um, and the skill sets that you learn as a, as a pediatrician in training, they're basically kind of word of mouth and anecdotes, um, little pearls. And there's, there's very little that's actually structured. 
Um, and so you can struggle, and that, that's partly why I wanted to try and, um, and teach it. And something like that would be kind of fun to add to the mix. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, even with all the tricks I know and all the you know behavioral therapy CDs <laughs> I listen to and things, when I have a child in distress, uh, especially a common thing here is ears, ear problems. Yeah. It is impossible to communicate with the child. I mean, yeah. they're just, you know, it's, it's my daughter especially. She's just... She's so extremely difficult, you know, there's no communication at that point. You have to yeah, guide when, and when help and comfort. Them yeah. You lose them. yeah, and you can't get any any feedback, you know. Right. I had, um, it's funny, they, they say, and it's absolutely true, um, if you're a good pediatrician, it doesn't make you a good parent. But all the pediatricians who are parents are quite good pediatricians. Hmm. So the parenting skills you can apply to your work. Mm-hmm. But um, just being just because you're trained to treat kids doesn't actually make you any better at handling them. Right, right. Um, so I know my approach has changed a lot in the last few years. I've I've got two kids of my own, and um, and yeah, you you learn a lot from them. They're completely different. It's really funny, you know. Same environment, you you, you think completely different temperaments, different likes, dislikes. Yeah, um, there's a lot of fun. Yeah, humans are special. That's for sure. <laughs> Hey, yeah, so yeah. let's move on to the the real meat of the matter, and that's mm-hmm. vaccinations. Yeah. Can I start with this? Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between immunization and vaccination? Not really. They're kind of synonyms for the same thing, is okay. what I think of it. Having said that, there are um, two ways of thinking of immunization. So um, we think of passive, or medics think of passive and active, and active immunization is vaccination. So I'll explain a bit about the difference. So immunization basically means you're protected against an infected, an infection, whether it be a virus or a bacteria. Um, So your body has some way of being protected against it through an immune response. Now, the best immune response is an active immune response. And that is when your body has in some way, either through in previous infection or through previous vaccination, developed a, a real response to it, an active response. So your body has seen um, a, a part of or the whole organism and learned to recognize it and mount an immune response. And that's usually either antibodies or a, a cellular response, a T cell response. And that's an active response. Now, there are forms of passive immunization. And what passive immunization means that um, your body has received something, but it's all it's received is the actual protection. And the best example of passive immunity is immunity that babies get from their mothers. So when the, when the baby's in the womb and when the baby breastfeeds, antibodies get transferred from the mother to the baby. But those antibodies aren't babies. They don't hang around. They, they disappear with time. They gradually kind of fade away. Um, but the baby passively acquires that immunity, and that's still immunity. We know that breastfed babies are protected against gut infections with viruses. They have fewer ear infections. They have fewer pneumonias. They just are healthier kids. It's not night and day, but it's just a general trend that kids who are breastfed do better. And um, premature babies, one of the reasons why premature babies are so vulnerable to infection is because most of the passive immunization from the mother happens in the last month or two of pregnancy hmm. and premature babies are missing the last month or two of pregnancy. So they, they kind of miss out on the whole antibody transfer thing. 
And um, so they're born with no passive immunity and they're thrust out into the world and their immune system is like, oh, crap, I've got to catch up now. And they can get sick before they get a chance to catch up. Um, so immunization um, includes vaccination, but immunization can also be passive. Um, there are even some uh, passive treatments that we use. So um, there's a one of the um, uh, so I think of it as a drug. It's not really a vaccine um, that I studied. I was involved studying was for an RSV antibody. And we've known for years that RSV is a terrible virus. It's called um, respiratory syncytial virus. It comes every winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, it causes coughs, colds, runny noses, no big deal, you might think. Um, but if you're a preemie or if you have lung disease or if you have a congenital heart defect, uh, it can kill you. I mean, mm -hmm. it can really be a devastating virus because the lungs just can't cope with it. And um, and I've seen the whole gamut. I've seen kids with snotty noses, and I've seen kids who just stop breathing. They become apneic and, and just stop breathing, um, which is always entertaining when you're trying to <laughs> manage them on the floor. And then, um, or I've, I've seen the terrible lung disease that it can cause. Um, we've also known that if the mother has high high antibody levels, she can protect her baby. And so one of the ways in which the doctors have tried to mimic this in babies who don't have that advantage, like preemies, is they will actually, they've actually developed antibodies in the lab that will bind to RSV. And you can inject these just as you would inject a vaccine um, into premature babies, and you can cut the rate of RSV disease in half. I mean, it's not, again, it's not black and white. It's not like it goes away completely. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a dramatic drop in death rates and in hospitalization rates. So even if the kid catches RSV, they're going to get a cold. They're not going to get pneumonia or bronchiolitis mm -hmm. or, or something terrible. And... Um, that's something you have to inject monthly for about five or six months through the winter because the antibody is passive. It doesn't last long enough. Okay. Okay. Um, in, interestingly, there was a vaccine in the 1960s um, for RSV, and it was a great idea. You know, if you could actually give active immunization to RSV, you could you could like prevent the common cold. It's like, oh yeah, this be great. And so they made this lovely vaccine that it was a it was a virus vaccine. They grew, they killed the virus, so it should be safe. And they injected it into kids, and the kids seemed to do great. And then they got RSV, and in the placebo group, in the control group, nobody died. And in the vaccine group, some kids died. And they realized this was a really, really bad vaccine. And it actually induced an immune response that was an abnormal immune response. It, it, hmm. it made the kids hyper-responsive. Um, and it caused a huge amount of trouble. It basically shut down RSV vaccine research for about 40 years because people were too afraid to hmm. to go back and do it again. Um, so it how does this speak really to... I'm sorry, how does this speak to viruses at large, the, the whole subject of viruses? We can't actually cure any virus, right? Um, kind of true. We can treat several viruses. Treat, uh, um, yeah, uh, so mitigate the devastating effects, but... We, viruses are special, aren't they? <laughs> they are, because the trouble is they hijack so much of what we use in our cells. They they don't they can't they're parasites. They can't live without our cells. Which means if you try and attack them, you're almost inevitably attacking your own cells at the same time, which is generally considered a bad thing. Um, bacteria, on the other hand, are sufficiently different from us that we can target them, and we're not going to hurt our own cells. So they're much easier to kill. Um, now, there are some viruses that we can treat, and we've got some effective medicines for. The best example is herpes. And I'm thinking of that because I've, I've been treating um, herpes recently in the hospital. So we have a drug called acyclovir, 
Um, you can have it by mouth. You can have it by IV. Um, you, although herpes infections are lifelong because the virus can go and hide in your nerves, mm-hmm. the acute infection and the outbreaks you can treat effectively and you can save lives in, in some cases with this. So that's nice. Um, HIV medications. We've got a ton of HIV meds now. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you can't cure the infection. You can control it and, and keep people healthy. Um, there are some viruses like hepatitis C where it can be very hard to, um, you can shut it down, you can put people into what they call remission, um, but it's very hard to completely clear the virus from the body. Um, yeah, if someone has a bad disease, uh, it can always flare up again. And speaking of the of herpes, I know when, um, I think it was my firstborn, yeah, mm-hmm. um, we were, we went to see, we went to a midwife for the, the was our primary, basically our primary care person. She was our point of contact. She was yep. our total resource. She was absolutely amazing. I'm so happy to have ever met her, especially since we didn't know anything. Yeah. And, and she was just a very beautiful person. But um, I had, uh, right before delivery, I had a massive cold sore in my mouth. And I, mm. when I get them, they're just they're ridiculous. I look yep. like I'm diseased. <laughs> and uh she's like and you know that thing on your face i'm like yeah yeah she's like let's just call it what it is and i'm like what a cold sore she's like it's herpes <laughs> and you need to be well aware of it and deal with it and yeah. understand you got to stay away from the newborn yeah absolutely while you're broken out like that and i'm like you know what i like the, your frank talk and you know it's it was it was wonderful mm-hmm yeah, that's good. So I'm, I'm making sure my computer monitors on and get light from that side. <laughs> I don't know if you're recording video as well as audio. No, I don't record the video. Oh, that's all right. And you look great. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it could be scary in newborns. It's annoying for adults, but it's generally not, um, not too scary. Um, rarely it'll cause severe infections of the brain. Um, in newborns, it can be absolutely devastating. Um, I've right. seen horrible, horrible neonatal herpes um, usually, um, vertical transmission, meaning from mother to baby and nine times out of 10, mum doesn't have a clue. There's no history. It's just mm-hmm. without any kind of warning. Um, and I've got a blog post about that. Yeah. Okay. So, cool. And then, and then, uh, the other, there's a small percentage where it's what we call horizontal transmission, where it comes from, um, a family member. Like you say, if, you know, if, if dad or grandma or aunt's got a, a cold sore and you know and they love the baby and they give the baby a kiss and um you can transmit it and uh it may not make the baby quite as sick but you still gotta you can still get in trouble in some ways viruses are so smart but why the hell would they want to kill their host <laughs> <laughs> well they're not supposed to yeah That's the thing if so the way of thinking about um say a neonatal herpes infection is it's the wrong host Herpes, especially, say, genital herpes, it wants to get spread from genitalia to genitalia. It wants to keep the host alive. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not going to want to kill you because if you die, it can't spread. Mm -hmm. Um, It accidentally infects a newborn, and it's a mistake. You know, it's not something that the virus wants to do. if If it makes the kid too sick, it's a dead end host, and literally... And it ain't going anywhere. And that's often a a way of thinking about some of these viruses and and how they cause disease is they enter the wrong host. And that's when you you get disease. Um, uh, Some of the best examples um, are the zoonotic infections. And zoonotic infections are infections that transfer from animals to humans. And um, it may well be, it probably is true, that HIV is a zoonotic infection. Um, HIV 
is almost identical to viruses. There's two different strains of HIV, really. It came from monkeys and chimps. But if you look at the monkeys and chimps who are infected with their versions of HIV, um, called SIV, simian immune deficiency virus, if you look at the monkeys' SIV, they don't get sick. Um, they, they live with the virus, and it, it doesn't seem to cause them any trouble. And what's interesting is if you get two different monkeys with their own SIVs and you put the SIV from monkey A into monkey B, monkey B gets sick. Hmm. It's got the wrong SIV for it. And it may be that we have a chimp or a, a monkey SIV in us, in us that we've, we call it HIV because that's what we think of. We're anthropomorphic, anthropocentric, and everything revolves around humans. Um, but uh, um, really, it's an, it's an animal virus. It's in the wrong host. Until the animals start talking and voting, they're just not going to get to respect. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, I wonder who they would vote for. That'd be interesting. I, maybe they'd, I'm, I'm sure they'd be as smart as me and not participate at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't get the option from England. I, I can't vote here. Oh, yet. lucky you. Yeah. Just, just I, go along for the ride. and you get to enjoy the show. It's there you go. There you go. Watch the parade. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that, that's, for many things, times when viruses make us sick, they, they don't intend to kill the host at all. Um, it's not in there. Like you say, evolutionarily, it makes no sense. And if you look at how the virus is normally found in the wild, it's, it's found its way into the wrong host. Mm-hmm. Influenza. We, we, we get flu shots every year. Everyone freaks out about it. It kills old folks. It kills young kids. Um, it's an avian virus. It's a it's a bird virus that lives in their gut. It doesn't even give them pneumonia. It lives in their gut, and, and they're happy as a clam, and they don't they don't get sick from it. If you get a mutant version that crosses into humans, you get disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole zoonosis uh, theme. I have a whole lecture series called or lecture called the perils of pets. Of all these cases of infections that came from animals into humans. Interesting. Yeah, and the uh, avian flu is a prime example, right? Well, yeah. I mean, so it didn't um, – let me see if I can remember how that worked. Mm-hmm. It was – the story goes something about pigs, birds, and humans. Is that kind of the triangle right. there? Yes, exactly, um, because there's there's porcine or swine flu versions, mm-hmm. and, there's, um, and humans and swine can exchange viruses fairly happily. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're close enough to pigs, you know, who'd have thunk it? Um, and a birds generally don't transmit directly to humans. Um, our, our physiology is different enough that the virus can either adapt well to one host or the other, but not both. But birds can also transmit to pigs. And so what can happen is you get a bird virus that transmits to a pig at the same time as you may get a human flu virus infecting the same pig. And flu is a fascinating virus. Most viruses have maybe one genome, um, meaning one set of RNA or DNA that makes up what they are. Um, Flu has eight, and so they have eight segments. Um, So you could infect uh, a pig cell with two different um, strains of flu, and those segments reassort, and you end up with a virus that spat out of the cell with a mishmash, with, you know, a mixture of different segments. And you may end up with a virus that could infect a human, that the human has never seen before. And so you have no immunity from a previous year's infection. Mm-hmm. And that's called, um, that's called mutagenic shift, uh, antigenic shift, when the, the virus changes its antigens, bang, just like that, and you've never seen it before. Um, flu changes subtly every year, and that's called antigenic drift, 
the drift is usually okay. We can handle that. We might get sick, but we're not going to die. We're not going to get really sick from a, from a drifted virus. Mm -hmm. But if you get a shifted virus, and that's what happened in 2009 from uh, South, Amer South America with the H1N1 there, that was an H1N1. We had an H1N1 already circulating, but it was a different H1N1, which was really confusing. Um, and it was, a, it was a shift, and we had no immunity to it. And a lot of people got sick. Um, and what was funny about the 2009 strain is it really hit the kids hard uh, more than anything else. And the old folks um, did surprisingly well. And, and they found out that the old folks, if they were born before 1957, had seen a virus like it. And they'd survived their virus in 1957, hmm. and they still had immunity in 2009. Yeah. Um, so they weren't getting that sick. It completely rewrote the rule book for flu. The rule book was, you know, old folks died and, and young kids got mm -hmm, a little sick. Mm -hmm. You know, in 2009, it flipped it completely. It was really hard on the kids. We had the highest um, pediatric mortality from flu in years. So when you get a flu shot every year, what are they, what are they giving you? Are they just trying to pre-select the most popular flu? Exactly. It's pre-selected, so they can get it wrong. Um, mm -hmm. It's pre-selected maybe six months beforehand. Can um, they give you multiple flus or no? Just they give the you one. three. Okay. So each flu shot at the moment, there's a company which is working on uh, a four-strain vaccine. Um, the, the currently most vaccine is three and you get two A strains, meaning two strains of influenza A, and there's a strain of influenza B thrown in. Um, the A viruses are usually the, the bigger players, the major players. And H1N1 was a, um, was an A strain virus. Um, uh, but they can get it wrong and they guess it based on what was circulating in the Southern hemisphere that winter. And so they say, oh, this will probably come our way next year. And so they, they select it. The reason there's, there's such a time lag is because the virus is grown in eggs. Um, it's a very long process. Um, so it's not something they can just switch on in a, in, a, in a factory. They literally have to grow the virus and purify it. Um, and if they get a strain that is not very good at growing in eggs, then uh, you can take even longer. You mm. know, very low yields of virus. Um, you may have to do multiple batches, and they were worried about that for 2009. So that's how they have to collect it and grow it, and they grow it in eggs. Yep, chicken eggs. Uh, yep, chicken eggs. Um, so there was a concern until even until the last year about um, egg allergy. You know, if you if you're giving someone a vaccine that was grown in eggs, even if you purified it, is there a risk to people who have egg allergy? And up until last year, recommendation was don't get the flu shot if you have an egg allergy. Now we know that um, there's so little in there, um, it's, it's probably not a problem. Um, there are people who, if they're worried, they can always go to an allergist office and, mm -hmm. uh, um, and maybe get a, um, you know, do it under a more controlled situation. But any doctor's office should mm -hmm. have the ability to deal with a bad allergy reaction. That so of, how was this done back in the day? Say, Jonas Salk, how did he do this? Um, well, some of the vaccines were grown in cell culture. Um, Salk actually he made a he made the killed polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, so even if it's a killed vaccine, they are often grown up in tissue culture first. And what tissue culture is is basically um, cell lines that could be from animals. It may be from a human tumor cell line. Like the HeLa cell line is a very famous cell line from um, a woman called Henrietta Lacks. That's why it's called HeLa. And uh, there's basically just a bunch of cells on a, on a dish. And you can um, try different viruses. Some of them will grow in the cell lines and some of them won't. And if they grow, that's great. Um, you can purify the, the, the fluid that the cells sit, sit in. Mm -hmm. 
and um, take off the virus, um, and you can you can then either kill it um, or you use it live. Um, the live vaccines are much more effective. So, like measles, mumps, rubella is a live virus vaccine, and um, it, it just works better that way. The downside of live virus vaccines is um, they they tend they can give more side effects because you're actually getting slightly ill. You're not just reacting to an uh, antigen or half dozen antigens. Yeah, I could see this so, is probably best for a very healthy person. Yeah, so um, if you have an immune deficiency, you should not get live viral vaccines um, because you potentially can actually get quite sick from it. And um, it's a big problem because the people with immune deficiency are the ones you want to protect most, mm. uh, particularly from some of the, the live viral vaccine diseases. So um, measles or um, rubella or varicella, chickenpox, um, they can be devastating in someone who has an immune deficiency uh, because your body has no way of fighting it off. Um, is there is there anything to be said for some of these diseases being something maybe we we just should be allowed to get? I'm, I don't know if I'm using the right word by calling them diseases, but yeah, um, should we everything known that we have a response to medically a mm -hmm. treatment is that necessarily the right course? I think it depends on the bug and it depends where you are. Um, and you, you see this when you look around the world at different uh, vaccination recommendations. So the, uh, the best example I can think of right now is chickenpox vaccine. So chickenpox in the States um, is one of the pediatric vaccines. It's given at a year of age and there's a booster dose at uh, four to five years of age or four to six years of age. Um, and it's on the routine schedule. And there's even a booster booster dose um, when you're in your 60s. For, to prevent reactivation with shingles, which is the, the second half of chickenpox. You get chickenpox first, and then it reactivates, and you get shingles. Now you uh, go. Can to I the, interrupt you real quick? Yeah. If I won't lose your train of thought. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to the idea that because all the children are vaccinated against chickenpox, that that's the resurgence for shingles in older populations because they aren't continually exposed to chickenpox right. like normal children would have? Then the... Uh, adult who's already had the immunity built in strengthens their immunity over time so that's exactly is that insane uh, or what no no not at all that's exactly the argument why in england they weren't doing the chickenpox vaccine because they argued that you know potentially they, they this is theoretical it was like like you said it was a theoretical approach um, that the older population weren't getting re-exposed to kids with chickenpox and, and were maybe having a higher rate of shingles. Um, when they've actually gone back, this is um, in the last couple of years, they've gone back and tried to analyze some of that data properly because um, they didn't really have data. They just had uh, an, an idea or concern. And they, they don't really think that's, that's the reason now. They don't think it's a major player in whether reactivation occurs or not. Hmm. Um, this kind of population exposure. But that was a very legitimate concern in England as to why they weren't doing chickenpox vaccine. And are they now? The U.S. was. And so that's why I used it as an example, because you had you had exactly the right question. Okay. Uh, uh, because there are differences in opinion. And for some people, it was opinion. Um, they didn't have data at the time. The data now is favoring that maybe vaccination is not a bad idea. Um, there are certainly risks of, of varicella in kids. I've seen um, kids, certainly with immune deficiencies, get really quite ill with varicella. And even healthy kids can um, get complications. Um, the biggest one that I worry about is group A strep. It sounds crazy, but I'm worried about a strep infection. 
but the risk of invasive back, you know, bloodstream infections from group A strep after having had chickenpox is actually surprisingly high. Um, and yeah, you can treat group A strep with antibiotics, sure, if you want to. But um, I'd rather my kid didn't even have to go to the hospital to get the antibiotics in the first place. You're right, right. Um, so before we leave chickenpox, what about the? Uh, I don't want to delve too far into the anti-vax community, but what about the idea of um, chickenpox parties and things like that that people do? Yeah, and um, one of the other things that uh, they, people have recently gone a step beyond that, and you may have heard about the um, the lollipops, where they'll they'll have a kid, one of their kids who's got um, uh, an infectious disease like chickenpox, they'll they'll lick a lollipop and they'll put it in the mail and send it to someone else, mm. Mm. which actually is a felony, believe it or not, because you're you're shipping an infectious disease, organ, yeah, which uh, is actually a felony because labs can't do that, so there's okay. no reason. Joe Public should, um, which I didn't realize until I was reading some of these reports. But it, it was on the same principle that, you know, you get, quote, natural immunity mm-hmm. um, to an infection and that natural immunity is um, better than vaccine-induced immunity and all the rest of it. And there's, 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 a, there's an, a hint of truth behind that. Um, natural immunity is normally, but not always, depends on the bug, um, normally stronger than vaccine-induced immunity. There are some vaccines that we can make, like for Haemophilus influenza type B, Hib, where the Hib vaccine is, is much stronger than the, immu- the immunity you get from the disease. But for some things, say like chickenpox, the immunity may be better with the natural infection than with the vaccine infection. But here's the crux. The risk of complications from the vaccine are incredibly low, whereas the risk of complications from a real infection are that much higher. Now, they're not like crazy high. It's not like if you inject someone with MRSA in their bloodstream that they're going to get sick inevitably. It's, it's not mm-hmm. like that. But um, we know that, that there is a finite number of kids who even if chickenpox is normally healthy for just about, not, not normally healthy, normally not a big deal mm-hmm. for most kids, there are complications that occur. Mm-hmm. And we know this because they've measured them and they've studied them. And since the U.S. has introduced the chickenpox vaccine, the rate of complications from chickenpox has dropped by about 80%, hmm. which means there's a big gap. There's, there was a number mm-hmm. and it dropped, which means that was not a zero number and it's still not a zero number, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which means that the natural um, infection has a, has risks. And uh, I, I kind of, when in that Twitter conversation that you alluded to earlier, um, the, the, the thing I said is, you know, natural immunity may be better than, than vaccine immunity if you survive the infection. And for certain <laughs> patients, I know it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of I guess dramatic, but here, yeah, and this leads a lot to the whole picture. Say mm-hmm. from the World Health Organization, or take any large NHS, huge population profile. Yeah, that's what that's what they're. That's the concern is mm-hmm. keeping as many people as possible alive, right? Right. Yeah. So it's it, a public it, health thing, and. Um, it's actually uh, it's a it's a weak argument for parents. The parents, I mean, being parents, I mean, I think we can see this. Um, it's a weak argument to say to someone, "I want you to immunize your kid to protect the population, to really protect someone else's kid." It's a much stronger argument to say, "I want you to immunize your kid to protect your kid," um, because ultimately we do vaccinate. The medical profession does vaccinate for the herd, for society. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, we, we see cases and one of the strongest arguments that I make for vaccination is having seen so many kids 
who've been sick and in the hospital or died from vaccine preventable disease. Okay. And that's a, to me, it's a strong argument to someone. But the bigger picture is um, I promote vaccination for this, for society. If you don't have enough coverage, it's pretty much useless um, for, for for the prevention of epidemics. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you need um, you need a like you say you you want to not have any holes there. Um, measles is the best example um, because it's so infectious. You need something like ninety five percent coverage just to prevent an infection, an epidemic from occurring. And in parts of England, um, coverage is down to 70%, um, particularly at the height of the Wakefield scandal. And um, the England went from a country where they'd said, we have no measles, we're done, we wiped mm-hmm. it off the face, you know. And now, now they went a few years later, they were like, oh, it's, it's endemic, meaning that it's here, we're stuck with it, you know, suck it up. And kids have died, you know, as, uh, even in, in England, which is, you know, uh, a first-rate developed country with an excellent mm-hmm. health system, kids died from measles, which is appalling. Um, and they, they weren't all, you know, immunodeficient or, or sick. Um, it, was, it was just sad that there's every time someone gets sick from a vaccine-preventable disease, you roll the dice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be a very low risk, but you're rolling are, the dice. Are yeah. vaccinated children... Um... Are they carriers, and can they spread um, so, these diseases? That's a great question. Because uh-huh. I always see, they always point to an unvaccinated children as infecting other children, but I thought that vaccinated children also spread disease. Yeah, so unvaccinated are much more likely to spread disease, um, but I, I, much more likely not the only one. So if you have, um, say, uh, as someone who's got um, a full-blown measles infection, they can spread that and it'll go all over the place. If you have someone who's immune to measles and they're exposed to it, um, they may not even pick it up. And if someone, say, gets a flu shot and they get exposed to the flu, they may get a mild version. They may spread it a little, but they're not going to be spreading it as much. So the the rate can go down, but it's not zero. Um, but it generally drops. The best examples we have for that are with the vaccines for um, Hib, the Haemophilus influenza, and probably for pneumococcus as well. Um, these are both vaccines that target the outer capsule of the bacteria, the bacterial infections. Um, and they, we've shown that we've not only reduced disease in kids who are immunized, we also reduce disease in kids who are unimmunized as a result of reducing herd, uh, reducing herd carriage. So it seemed to be that we weren't just preventing invasive infection. We were genuinely preventing carriage. So in, for those infections, immunized kids were less likely to be carriers than unimmunized. Um, and it, it's not true for every vaccine, but as a general rule, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's, that's the case. And certainly for those two diseases, that's been shown. And so it's, it's really helped us a lot um, when you can um, protect the rest of the population. You can actually show that you protect, you protect the rest of the population hmm. from even the unimmunized. Very interesting. <laughs> so... What is the protocol used um, that, that, that you utilize for recommendations or the, the immunization schedule? Where does it come from? Who creates it? So there's a, a, a group of people called the, um, uh, the ACIP, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices. Um, the ACIP is a group of experts um, from the infectious disease um, you know, uh, academic area. 
where uh, they will review the current studies, the current literature, the um, the recent approvals of vaccines that the FDA has has seen and, and signed off on, and then make recommendations on when those vaccines and if those vaccines should be given. Um, those recommendations don't have to be followed, but they are guidelines that most um, professional bodies like the American Academy of Pediatrics will accept ACIP recommendations. Um, the CDC um, follows them generally, uh, and insurance companies follow them. So mm -hmm. if, the, if ACIP makes a recommendation, insurance company will then start covering that immunization, um, and Medicaid will cover it for the, un, the uh, uninsured kids. Um, uh, the ACIP is, doesn't Base, it, base their decision solely on uh, drug approval. So if there's a new vaccine um, that comes out, like the Menactra vaccine, um, they would say, uh, and it was approved for 11 years of age, um, the ACIP fairly quickly said, this is a great vaccine, we're going to save lives, um, you should give it at 11. Give it as soon as you can, get the kids immunized before they go to college, um, and that would be great. We've since learned that that you know it is great to immunize an 11 year old but you then have to give a reboost before we go to college we didn't know that at the time so you know live and learn um the company who who made that and other companies who've made similar vaccines have actually studied that vaccine in younger and younger children so uh, they've gone from 11 down to 5 down to 2 down to 9 months of age and they've, they've got fda approval for some of these vaccines so you can get a meningitis vaccine for a kid who's nine months of age and the ACIP studied this and said, eh, you probably don't need to give it down that young. You know, you, you can if you have a kid who's got an immune deficiency. Mm -hmm. If you have a kid who's got no spleen, if you have a kid who's got a complement deficiency, which is a, a part of the immune system which you use to fight these encapsulated bacteria, um, so you, you've got a specific weak spot there, they said, you can give that vaccine because this company studied it and we know it's safe and we know it's effective in these young kids. But for a healthy young kid, a young nine-month-old, you probably don't need to give it. Mm. So you get these differences between what the drug companies have studied and what academics have studied and what the FDA has approved and then what the ACIP recommends. Um, and outside of that, the ACIP recommendations are just recommendations. You can actually give a vaccine off-label um, at any time. Um, I give off-label vaccines all the time because I have kids who come in who are immune deficient and I have to give boosters. So they may have a low response to a certain vaccine which puts them at risk of infection. I'll give them an extra shot, hmm. um, partly to boost their immune response to make them safe and partly to test their immune system. Because there are some kids, if you boost them and nothing happens, you're like, crash, your immune system doesn't work. <laughs> these, are the, these are not the live. No, these aren't the live ones, exactly. Right, right. Um, these are usually the, the polysaccharide ones um, because they're the most, in my mind, they're the most important ones right now in mm -hmm. the U.S. Um, and then, uh, you know, you can check tetanus. We can check live responses. But it's funny because these kids will often have um, half-decent responses to the live vaccines and, and half-decent responses to protein vaccines like tetanus. Um, but they have pretty poor responses to the, to the polysaccharide, these encapsulated bacteria. And, um, and they, they, I see them because they keep getting pneumonias or respiratory mm -hmm. infections, and their, their pediatrician sends them my way and says, help, can you fix them? And sometimes I can, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. Let's move on. I know we're almost up against the hour, but mm -hmm. 
you know, what is it? How, how would I like to say it? Like the engine that drives all this <laughs> stuff is profit. I mean, in, in a way, Western healthcare is a yeah, profit driven yeah. machine. Western and, healthcare in general, I would and, say that yeah. that's probably true. And you had mentioned to me, there's not a lot of profit in these medicines. There isn't. So uh, here's my question. Yeah. Can these pe- can these companies be trusted to do it simply from altruism? Then, <laughs> are they really are they are we really to rely on these massive multinationals to be so altruistic to create the best medicines for us when there's no profit motive when they exist in a system that demands profit? Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, the, our current in the U.S. at least. Um, the vaccine companies that exist exist and operate purely because they have some government protection. And unfortunately, the U.S. is a, a very litigious society. And um, back in the 80s, um, a lot of wrong, wrongful uh, lawsuits were brought against um, the vaccine companies. And I, I say wrongful because if you actually looked at the cases uh, of, of, of alleged vaccine harm, there was no evidence that harm was done. But um, the the companies were being forced to settle because it was too expensive to fight. And then they were finding it was so expensive, they were getting so many that they were going bankrupt and they, they couldn't settle every suit. And so we lost company after company after company. And it actually became a national crisis. And the government intervened and said, listen, we're going to do two things. We're going to have a no-fault no system set up um, there's going to be a compensation fund with limits um, on what can be paid out. And if anyone has, has an apparent problem, they, they, you know, they can go to this compensation fund. It's called the National um, uh, uh, Vaccine Injury Compensation Fund. Um, and the companies will be protected. And that allowed what was left of the vaccine industry in the states to keep operating. Um, what it means, though, is that if there's a problem, we, we have very little buffer. So a couple of years ago, there was a hip vaccine shortage. You know, if a company has a batch problem or a purification problem or a safety issue and, and they get um, shut down or, or temporarily suspended for a while, we lose a huge chunk of our vaccine supply um, uh, because one company goes down and there's two others, maybe, if you're lucky, um, who can step up. Otherwise, you're, you're really stuck. Um that, that wasn't the case. It didn't used to be the case at all, but that's what happened. Um, so they only really operate because there's some protection in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you asked about can we trust the companies. It's a very interesting story. Um, there's a, uh, there was a company set up. It wasn't really a company. It was, it was a, um, a non-profit initiative set up, um, seed funded by a few million bucks from the Gates Foundation. And its purpose was to develop a vaccine for meningitis A. It was a very um, restrictive um, plan. Uh, meningitis A is like one of these encapsulated bacteria. These bloody encapsulated bacteria, they, they're horrible infections. So meningitis A um, sweeps across the middle of Africa. Um, it's called the meningitis belt um, every year, particularly during the, um, the Hajj pilgrimage. And it, can, it kills used to kill thousands of people every year. So it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Now, they were tasked with developing a vaccine to prevent this. They were successful. They were stunningly successful. They not only create, developed and created a specific vaccine for this infection, um, they did it for pennies. It's like 40 cents a shot. 
it's tremendous and it's going to make a huge difference to when they when they rolled this out in the in, for the initial rollout in some of the countries during last year's Hajj pilgrimage there were basically no cases of meningitis in the kids who got a vaccine it was it was tremendous um, for like 40 cents a shot the the western equivalent is a vaccine called Minactra Minactra protects against four different strains okay you get four for one um, but it's not 40 cents a shot it's closer to 100 plus dollars mm. a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the difference between uh, a for-profit company um, who admittedly has invested millions in uh, safety and development and studies and, and uh, admit, yeah, drug dinners, yes, <laughs> uh, true, uh, into getting their drug to market. Um, but you're not going to be able to vaccinate the Hajj pilgrimage with Minactra. It's, it's prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, can vaccinate the Hajj pilgrims with this monovalent hepatitis, um, a meningitis A vaccine. Um, and, and so, yeah, it can be done outside of a for-profit model. It, I, I remember hearing about this story, and I was just uh, stunned. I was so impressed at what they achieved. Oh, I believe it could be done in exclusively a non-profit model. That was yeah. my biggest concern, is that the companies can't exist our companies can't exist in that, yeah, that model. I know. You know, they're they're fighting. It's it's tough. I demonize the pharma industry constantly in my mind. <laughs> at least I'm not a big, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't have a big voice out there. But I, I can see how how difficult this is. So yeah, it, it is difficult for them. But I I have some um, sympathy. But I also agree. We do live in a, a for profit system, which I don't necessarily. I mean, I was I don't necessarily agree with it. I was. Um, I grew up in England, and I, I, I grew up with uh, the socialized the demon of socialized medicine. Ooh, um, yeah, we have better health outcomes for half the cost. So I think it works pretty darn well. Hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things is, you know, you, you can you can treat as, you know as many or as few patients as you like for the same amount of money. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not constantly in England. I wouldn't be worried about how you know uh, profit driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's always something kind of in the back of your mind here, you know. What can I bill for that? You know, what's covered? Right, right. right. And uh, it, it's it's a change. The actual practice. I'll be honest. The actual practice of medicine at the front line is very similar in the U.S. and the U.K. The doctors and nurses do almost exactly the same job. It's just kind of behind the scenes. There's some okay. Okay. So I was actually reassuring to see. I came here and I was worried everyone was going to be, you know. Uh, no one would know how to examine a patient and everyone was testing everything. Find and, there, there's humans here too. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's funny. Who would have thunk? Yeah. Practice of medicine is pretty much the same. The cost is twice as much, but yeah, right. practice is similar. All right. So let's leave someone, um, some parents, some information. You have some ideas where they should go, what to read if they're interested in uh, pursuing vaccination research. Yeah, the, the, this, I, I, I'm going to recommend the CDC website. The language is fairly good. It's fairly well written. Um, it, it's not too technical. Um, you have to really watch what you read on the web. You talked about this right at the, at the beginning. And the biggest problem is that the easiest stuff to read is the least informative. And it's often wrong. Ah. Um, but that's the stuff that is, it is written at a more understandable level. And it can even sound more believable. I was going to say because it's probably they use the emotional angle. Exactly. So there's all that to do. But the CDC website's great. Um, your pediatrician, the pediatricians do know a lot about vaccines. Um, what they don't know, they can look up. Um, and uh, they can always consult their local friendly infectious disease specialist. 
Um, what's, uh, there's, there's an awful lot of big issues that uh, the pediatricians are becoming more and more aware of with the anti-vaccine movement. You know, concerns about aluminum, concerns about thimerosal, you know, the too many, too soon stuff. You know, we, 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 we know why none of those are legitimate concerns. Um, and, you know, if you ask the pediatrician the right questions, they can usually uh, address them or they should be able to address them. Um, so pediatricians are now asking for training for us, from us actually, which is kind of fun. That's good because, yeah, you know, when a parent goes to the pediatrician, the pediatrician often is just like, you know, this, this is, they, I'm, I'm kind of in, in involved in this where they just say this is, this is just the course of action. This is what you do yeah. as a parent. You take these yeah. medicines. You get, let, you sign the paper. <laughs> you give the kid the medicine now. Yeah, that, just deal with it. But here's the thing: I think I think I should say on behalf of all the pediatricians, if the, if your pediatrician is upset at you for not vaccinating your kid, or is annoyed at a parent for not vaccinating their kid, they're annoyed and upset because they have your kid's best interest at heart. Um, I know the parent does too, uh, and that's the conflict. Is but if someone's annoyed and someone's passionate about it, then that's the reason why they want to do what's best for the kid. And in the pediatrician's mind, the parent isn't doing what's best for the kid, even though the parent thinks they are. Okay. Um, that's where the conflict is, and that's what goes back to the patient-centered care thing. Find out what people's concerns are. What are they really worried about? Um, are they really worried about autism, or are you just making, are you just putting words into their mouth? You know, are they? Do they want to do something different with the timing? Do they just have a question they want you to ask and uh, answer, and and you're not allowing them to ask the question? Yeah, uh, kind of cut through the confusion, find out exactly. what the real concern is, and do some problem solving. Exactly. Yeah, and it's just open a dialogue. You know, yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be black or white. It can be a discussion and a dialogue. Uh, so that's that's the other thing I would say. If your pediatrician is passionate, it's because they care, and that's a good thing. Excellent. So um, we can find you at uh, cultureandsensitivity.wordpress.com. Yep, that's my blog. All uh, right. And uh, peds underscore id underscore doc on Twitter. I will have links in the show notes. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for thanks for calling, Brian. I really appreciate you reaching out. I, I, th- I thought this was really great. I thank you for your time. All right. Anytime. Call me again. We'll do another one. Let's do another <laughs> one. I'll get yeah. more specific and tear you up a little bit. Yeah, sounds good. (laughs) All right. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye.